Good afternoon, folks, and welcome to the Health Lab. I am your host, Joel Bland. Today's episode features Debbie Sampson. Debbie is a psychologist by trade. She is the former CEO and president of Back in Motion, who now works as a consultant for organizations with the hopes of building psychologically healthy workplaces. Today, we talked about what a psychologically healthy workplace looks like and what one might look like in a post-COVID world. We also touched on some strategies and, and, and overall tips for individuals who might be dealing with a chronic injury or chronic pain and really how to get activated both physically and emotionally when recovering from such an injury. We also discussed her involvement in the Rotary Club, how she gives back to the community and how that leads to an overall increase in fulfillment and satisfaction. Overall, what a great episode. I know I gained so much as I usually do and I know you will too. Let's get into it. Debbie Samson, thank you very much for joining me in the Health Lab. You're very welcome, Joel. I'm really happy to be here. Great. You know, I want to get into a lot about your background as a psychologist and your story, but I first want to touch on what you've been doing over the last little while. And I'm sure it's actually changed over the past few months with respect to lockdowns and COVID and all that. But I want to talk about what it looked like pre-COVID regarding your, your consultation with organizations with the hopes of building psychologically healthy workplaces. Now, what does that entail? How did you get into doing that? Well, I got into the whole area of psychologically healthy workplaces really because of my position as CEO of Back in Motion. Uh, a few years ago, um, we applied for a psychologically healthy workplace award uh, through the BC Psychological Association. Um, and the process in order to apply for that award was that uh, a couple of researcher psychologists came to Back in Motion and had all of our staff complete a survey. And uh, uh, we were successful, I might say, in achieving that award. And we actually got it uh, some years later as well, about five years later, we were successful again. Going through that process really, uh, struck uh, really caught my interest uh, i wanted to learn more about uh psychologically healthy workplaces and as i learned more about it and uh just got more involved i really wanted to help other organizations create psychologically safe places for their staff and for themselves to work so that's kind of the origins of my interest in it Interesting. And yeah, I know Back in Motion has received quite a few awards over the past few years from various organizations um, with respect to being a psychologically healthy workplace. Now, when you, how do you differentiate between, say, a workplace that is quite psychologically healthy and one that might need a little bit more work, a little bit more consultation? Well, I actually don't go out and evaluate workplaces. How I have grown into doing these, uh, what I do actually uh, is I do workshops with senior management because what we do know it is at the leadership level where uh, behaviors and actions and policies are most impactful. So it really is the leadership team that needs to understand what they can do to create psychologically healthy workplaces. So that's the group that I target. 
And the way I kind of got into it as a consultant is really through my interactions with other organizational leaders. For example, I was a member of the McKay CEO Forum, where I got to interact with many CEOs and the whole issue of the psychological health of their staff was really increasingly paramount uh, in their minds. And so I started offering these workshops and it just kind of spread via word of mouth. So I go into large and small organizations if they ask me to, and I deliver workshops to their senior management. Very, very applicable in today's world. And I mean, without getting into too much detail about the actual workshops, I mean, what are some of the messages that you try to send? What are the, some of the things that you try to deliver to these leaders? Well, I actually have them do a very brief version of a questionnaire where I ask them things, I ask them to evaluate their workplace. And so I ask them questions like, you know, would you say your work environment is characterized by trust, honesty, and fairness? Uh, would you say that you are supportive of your employees' mental health concerns? And do you respond appropriately as needed? And I have a 12 or 13 of these questions that come from the Guarding Minds uh, website, which is a free resource to support psychologically healthy workplaces. So I guess to say how I start is by asking them how they believe they are doing with respect to their workplace and then help them to identify areas where they could make some improvements and then we brainstorm different ways that they could implement those improvements. Mm -hmm. Can you provide any example of, of what one of those improvements might be? Well, a really simple example is uh, showing acknowledgement and appreciation for employees' efforts and doing that in a fair and timely manner. It really helps people's psychological health when other people acknowledge the great work that they're doing and they do it in a way that is appropriate. So that's a very simple one. You can have many conversations about how are you acknowledging that? How do you give people that kind of uh, acknowledgement? So that's a, a simple one. Um, other ideas that we might do is talk about whether or not they feel there's a good fit between an employee's sort of interpersonal and emotional competencies and the requirements of the position they hold. And that's an area within HR that really isn't well explored. People are, I think, human resource professionals are very good at evaluating whether or not someone has maybe the technical skills to do the job. But what about the interpersonal uh, or the personal resiliency to do jobs that are quite stressful? Uh, a good example of that is we all can have a tendency to promote someone who's a great technician into a management position because they're so good at what they do. But it's a whole different skill set uh, that you need to apply to management. And there's a whole, uh, uh, it's can be very stressful. I mean, we often talk about how middle management is a very stressful position, right? Indeed. And so, so it's important to make sure that one evaluates that component as well and ensures that the individual maybe has the tools to manage the stressful aspects of their job, not just the technical aspects. Um, I do want to talk about what that might look like in today's world, emotionally healthy workplaces in a, 
well, ongoing COVID world and potentially a post-COVID world. How do you think that might change? That is a really great question. I think that uh, all the principles that applied before COVID, of course, apply now. One of the things that's really important is to ensure that we take appropriate action to protect the physical safety of our employees. And actually, that also feeds into their sense of psychological safety. When employees know that we care about them, both physically and emotionally, it boosts their entire emotional uh, well-being. So I think employers are probably going to be faced with employees who post-COVID feel less physically safe in the workplace, more scared that they're going to contract COVID, for example. And employers really need to ensure that they are implementing all of the safety protocols that I know WorkSafe BC and other organizations are putting together. I think that actually will go a long ways in having employees understand and appreciate that their employers do care about them and want to ensure that their workplace is safe. Mm-hmm. Very valid. Yeah. I th- well, like you mentioned, sort of the, the physical side of things um, and how that also ties in in the psychological safety side of things and the psychological wellness side of things. Can you comment at all? I have an example from my my current life, okay, going into the workplace. Now, um, you know, back in motion clinics have been softly reopened over the past few weeks. Um, but of course, with all the necessary precautions, I mean, plexiglass um, barriers at, at reception desks and and clinicians and, and staff wearing masks and whatnot. How do those barriers, how, how do they present as both physical, but also, let's say, psychological or social barriers um, um, for connecting with an individual? Yes, they will take some getting used to. I think that certainly around here, we are not a, a culture that's used to physical distancing, that's used to masks and barriers to actually physically connecting uh, with people. I'm, I'm speaking personally. I, I find it quite uncomfortable. I, I, I will say I am getting used to it. I, my family lives on uh, Vancouver Island, so I've taken the ferry a few times and it's weird and it's uncomfortable. But I will say I am slowly getting used to the whole concept. And I think that's what we probably can expect of everybody that we aren't initially going to feel very comfortable. We're so used to shaking hands and hugging and it's just hard not to do those, but we need to learn not to. And I think the, so I think you're, for me, the word physical distancing is a much better description of what we're trying to achieve than social distancing. I really dislike that word because we are social beings and we need to find ways to connect socially, even if we have to stay two meters apart. So I I actually have, whenever I talk about it, I say physical distancing. I don't say social distancing because connecting with others is super important to our sense of well-being. So we need to keep doing it. 
Does that make sense? It makes it makes perfect sense, and I think we're on the same page with that. That's so so valid, just in the in the terminology there, indeed. Because just because we're distancing ourselves physically doesn't mean we have to distance ourselves socially. Um, but Absolutely. I, yeah, I'm I'm on that exact same page. Even you know, walking into Shoppers Drug Mart and seeing the cashier behind a barrier and behind a mask. Um, whereas previous to COVID, I you know obviously like seeing someone's face and interacting with them. You could still interact with them behind that burial barrier. Sorry, but just learning to accept that this is this is the new normal and this is how it might continue to be for the near future. Yes, and. The other thing that has really struck me in this process is, as it pertains to wearing masks, is that I really find myself looking at people's eyes because that's how I'm trying to gauge what they're feeling, whether they're smiling at me or, because I can't, I can't see the rest of their face, but I can see their eyes. And I gotta say, people have a lot of expression in their eyes if you actually look at them. So that's been my whole approach is look in people's eyes and then I get an idea of how they're feeling and whether they're happy to see me or wish I would just go away. <laughs> that's, that's so interesting. I mean, it's, it sounds like, you know, having to learn how to communicate on, on a whole different level. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Very, very cool. And yeah, indeed. I mean, looking into pe other people's eyes, it's so, it's so ingrained in our culture, but quite often we don't do it to the level that we could be doing it. Yes, we're taking our cues from other things because we have been able to. You know, if you want to know if someone's happy to see you, well, you see if they're smiling. But, but we can't see if they're smiling. So they got to smile with their eyes, as my daughter would say. <laughs> Indeed. Everyone's learning how to smile with their eyes. Like <laughs> That's right. right. <laughs> Excellent. No, I think uh, very, very good points about, you know, what this is going to look like in a in a post, well, again, a COVID world and a post-COVID world with respect to a psychologically healthy workplace. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Now, your, your background is in psychology. Um, is there anything, I wanted to touch on this a little bit, is there anything you miss about practicing as a frontline psychologist? Well, I made the decision not to practice as a frontline psychologist probably after I had been with Back in Motion for, um, I want to say, about 10 years. So just a little bit of history. Uh, I'm one of the original founders of Back in Motion, and I'm a clinical psychologist by background. And so we started the company in 1993. And at that time, we were offering an interdisciplinary treatment program for chronic back pain. In fact, that's how we got our name. So that's the back, in back, yeah, the back and back in motion. Um, and so when we started the company, there was just five of us and I was the clinical psychologist helping people deal with chronic back pain, as I'm sure we can all appreciate having to live with chronic pain has a lot of emotional consequences. People can get very depressed and or anxious and have a difficult time coping with that pain. And so that's the role of a clinical psychologist in an interdisciplinary pain program. So that's uh, where we started. And then as the company grew uh, and I eventually became the president of the company, we were growing quite rapidly and I was still doing clinical work and trying to you know, run a business off the side of my desk. 
And I can tell you that that's not really a very good way of doing things. Um, and so it got to be a little bit crazy. So at a certain point, I had to make the decision, what do I want to do here? And as much as I loved and love being a psychologist, it turns out that I love business more. And so that's when I stopped doing clinical work and focused all of my energy and attention on leading the company. And it was hard at first because initially I did miss that clinical work, but I started to appreciate that by leading the company and helping to grow the company, so many more people in Back in Motion would be able to touch the lives and help so many more other people. So that helped me to feel, um, I think, better about the fact that I personally wasn't doing the clinical work. I had a whole great group of people who were making incredible differences in the lives of so many people, and I got to lead that. So I grew to be really comfortable with it. I will say that my skills as a psychologist have come in very handy throughout my life, especially being the CEO of a company. <laughs> They're very useful. <laughs> I can only imagine. A lot of, lot of transferable skills there. <laughs> Absolutely, there are. <laughs> and, and I liked what you said about being able to touch people on a much more broader sense and, and sort of create change that might affect more of a general group of people as opposed to just that one-on-one -on -one interaction that you might have as a frontline psychologist, as a frontline therapist. Yes, ex exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I, I liked also what you said about just the, just the notion that so many people with chronic pain have psychological limitations, or there's a psychological concern or issue that, that accompanies chronic pain. And I, I wanted to ask, how much of that do you think plays into their, their recovery or their ability to overcome or, or work through chronic pain? It plays a really significant role, those what we call psychosocial factors uh, in recovery. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we started with treating people with back pain. And of course, as the company grew, we started you know, treating other body parts, if you will, shoulders, necks, you, know, you name it, we could help. Um, however, um, if you think about back pain, certainly you know, back in the day, and I'm talking you know, more than 20 years ago, there was not a whole lot of understanding that people had about their backs. And so there was so much fear associated with having chronic back pain and it not going away. People would use terms like, you know, I'm going to be paralyzed, you know, one wrong move and I, you know, that'll happen to me. People would say things like, oh, I've slipped a disc and we, we know that you can't slip a disc, right? They don't, they don't slip, but <laughs> anyway, you know, all these kind of notions and just so much fear about um, movement and starting to become active again. You know, when we first started doing this, there was still, still that view among many primary physicians that, you know, rest until you're better. And we know now that resting when you have musculoskeletal uh, injuries is actually you know a great way to have them persist uh, you really need to activate as quickly as you can it's probably true of so many physical uh, difficulties that we have 
And so that fear of, of movement, that not understanding what their pain meant and how much harm it's going to cause. And, and we, we talk about, you know, hurt versus harm. Those concepts are pretty familiar today, um, but we still find that when people have chronic pain and they don't understand the mechanisms that are causing it, there's, there's a lot of fear that there's something seriously wrong with them. And that fear and anxiety really plays into their ability to um, uh, address the pain and, and help and have them help themselves in their recovery. So it can kind of exacerbate things and make things snowball a little bit more. Absolutely. And then there's a lot of physiological responses that happen when we're stressed and anxious. We, you know, most of us know that when that happens, our muscles get really tense and, and tight. And so if you've got pain in your back and then your muscles are getting all tight from anxiety, you can get some pretty nasty muscle spasms, which just make the pain worse. And you can create a a vicious cycle of stress and, and pain and muscle tension, more pain, more stress. And sometimes it takes a while for people to work themselves out of that downward spiral. And um, it likely takes the help of a psychologist or an interdisciplinary team of individuals to, to overcome that psychological and physical spiral. Yes, for sure. And then the other emotional impact of chronic pain is if it prevents you from doing the things that you enjoy, interacting with people that you care about, so, you know, prevents you from connecting with others, doing activities that you enjoy, not doing those things is a really great way to get depressed. If you want to get depressed, sit around and do nothing. It really doesn't take very long. So with chronic pain, that depression becomes a problem as well because people are not getting any enjoyment out of their life. And when you don't get that enjoyment, that's a big trigger for depression. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That remaining idle and of, like you mentioned, avoiding these activities that, um, that an individual previously enjoyed. And, you know, as an occupational therapist, that speaks to me um, um, very well because on the one side, I, I help people get back to work, but I help people do the things that keep them occupied. That's where the occupation comes in predominantly. And I know, you know, personally and from working with my clients, if, if you're not occupied, if you aren't busy, um, that's when things can really spiral, um, as you mentioned, and, and, and snowball down that, down that downward spiral. Yes, and the other piece that contributes to that when you're not occupied, as you say, is that you have a whole lot of time to think. And you can, people can get into that sort of obsessional negative thinking pattern and all they're doing is sitting and thinking about their pain and how awful their life is and all the things that they're missing out on and all the worries that they have about never getting better. Too much time to think is not a good thing. We need to often be focused outwardly on what's going on in the world rather than what's going on in our heads all the time. Mm, mm. So for lack of a better word, trying to shift that mindset from a, a glass half empty to a, a glass half full mentality, it sounds like. Yes. And one of the things that's so important for our mental health is to have things to look forward to. That's one of the things that um, uh, I know uh, people were talking about during the COVID lockdown really was 
find some things that you can look forward to doing. And so if you are in pain, in, in our example, and you feel like you have nothing to look forward to, that also contributes to depression. You don't have a positive view of the future. Um, and that contributes to that negative thinking and negative thinking contributes to depression. And then of course, the more depressed you get, the more negative you're thinking and down you go again. And the snowball yeah. grows and grows and grows. Yeah, yeah. 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 Interesting. Do you, it, I, I know this isn't a, a psychological treatment session or anything like that, but do you have any strategies or tips, like single little tidbits that you might be able to, be able to provide to someone who, who might be suffering from, from something like that, that, that ongoing anxiety, focusing on the negatives? Yeah. One of the models that I, really like to use when helping people to manage their their mood this isn't for people who are clinically depressed it's really for all of us and, and they're called the five ways uh, to well-being by a researcher by the name of nick marks and i really like the work that he does because he takes all of the research that's out there on how to uh, stay happy and have a sense of well-being and he distills them into basically five key areas and I like that because it gives us a lot of choice in what we want to do within those areas. So the first area is connect. So we are by nature social beings, so connecting with others is actually the most important way to well-being. So that's the first thing I say to people is connect with others. Uh, and, and that's what was so difficult in, during COVID, right? Um, but as we've talked about, you can physical distance, but don't social distance, still connect with people. Mm -hmm. And then the second one is, uh, won't surprise you, it's be physically active. Physical activity is a great way for, to, to help us enhance both our physical and emotional health, right? So the fastest way of a bad mood is to do something active. So valid. Um, it took me about 30 years to realize that if I'm having a bad day, if I go for a 20 minute run, I instantly feel better and it might not work yep. that it might not work that immediately for everyone, but I know it works for me. Mm -hmm. Yep. And you know what? It doesn't even have to be anything huge. Just get off the couch and go for a walk. Uh, that's all you need to do, you know, or pick up some soup cans and do some curls and a few presses, you know, <laughs> all of these things, get a skipping rope. I have a, I have a friend who, uh, I had actually, I had done a talk on the five ways to well-being and she went out and she bought herself a hula hoop <laughs> and she said, now I watch TV and I hula hoop at the same time. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. That's like killing two birds with one stone type situation. Exactly. So being physically active is number two. And then the third is uh, to take notice. And so this, con this encompasses concepts such as mindfulness, where you pay attention and accept and take notice of your own thoughts and feelings. It more broadly means focusing awareness on the present moment and taking notice on not just what's going on within you, which is very important, but also taking notice of what's going on around you. So taking notice can be something like going for a walk in nature and just taking notice of all of what is around you. 
I remember one uh, person again when I was doing a workshop on this and we were talking about take notice and she said to me, you know what? I actually missed autumn this year. I was so busy at work and I would get to work and you know, I wouldn't, and it would be dark, you know, and then I'd leave work and it would be dark. And one day I looked around and there were no more leaves on the trees. I didn't take notice of autumn. And she said, I'm never gonna miss autumn again. So that's just a simple example of taking notice of really all of the good things that are actually around you. And I kind of laugh because there's so many little adages around this, like, uh, you know, stop and smell the roses. I mean, it's corny, right? But it's actually true. It's, it's written down because it works. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> That's I want to I want to just expand on that a little bit, the take notice um, aspect of things, because, you know, I had a conversation with with Philippe de Klerk a few weeks ago about mindfulness and what he uses um, in his daily mindful practice. Um, and it might be a little bit different from, you know, the stop and smell of the roses adage. But just personally, from from my personal experience with mindfulness, one of the things that I've started doing a little bit is going for walks in in, in big parks, like parks with trails. And I always leave my cell phone in my car and I just walk slowly and I feel the, the leaves and the roots beneath my feet and listen to the birds, listen to whatever's going on in the wind and, and the leaves rustling. And it really helps me to stay grounded, stay present and kind of just lets the past and, and the future and any anxieties or fears I might have wash away. And there's sort of a lasting effect that that has. So I, I feel better in the moment, but I also feel better for a couple of hours after that as well. Yes, that's a great example of, of, of taking notice. And mindfulness is, is fantastic. And it's that specific technique isn't necessarily for everybody. Many people find it beneficial, but there are many other ways of taking notice too. And your example is, is a, a very good one of that. Taking notice also means that we work to live in the present moment. Too many of us like to live in the past, right? Where we just remember how good things used to be or, you know, our glory days as the high school, you know, football quarterback or whatever it might be. Um, and then there's other people who can tend to live in the future with, Things like, uh, you know, I'll be happy when this happens to me. And I'll be happy when I get that promotion. I'll be happy when I find a life partner and I get married. And they're, they're not living today, they're living in the future. And one of the problems with that quite often is when they finally get to that, that great X, they're actually not happy. Mm. And then they're moving on to, well, okay, this didn't make me happy, but I'll be happy when something else happens. And so it's very helpful for our sense of well-being to be happy with who we are now and what we have now rather than thinking about the past, living in the past or the future. I shouldn't say it's so it's great to think about the past and the future actually. If we don't think about the future that might not be a good thing, but it's more the living in the future and and living in the past. The dwelling so taking, on it it sounds like. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So that take take notice also encompasses that concept of being in the present. Okay. And the next one for well-being is to keep learning. Uh, we, we certainly see that people will hop from job to job if they don't feel that they're learning things. They kind of go stale and they don't like that feeling. 
But learning doesn't necessarily have to be work-related. I think many people really enjoy that learning process at work and, you know, would like to take on new challenges and it gives them that sense of, of fulfillment. You don't have that in your workplace. There's myriad ways that you can be learning other things. And um, again, people will say to me after a workshop, and I, I always ask, so, you know, what, what's your takeaways from this? And I'll often get, I'm going to learn how to play the guitar or I'm going to learn Spanish or um, people really enjoy that process of learning and having their mind stay active. And that's a, a, a really great way of um, maintaining a great sense of well-being. So growing, then, challenging yourself. Sorry to interrupt. But, yeah, no, yeah, not at yeah, all. Yeah. And actually, to talk on your previous note, the take notice, I took notice of some crows calling in the background, but that's okay. I liked it. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, I, no, I, it's fine. I, I worked hard. You had mentioned that it would be helpful if I was in a quiet environment. So I had to trick my German Shepherd dog, who's still a bit of a puppy, out of my office. Um, but I don't know how to get rid of the crows. <laughs> I don't hey, know how to trick them. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. It fits well. It fits well with the theme. So Excellent. I, I do love crows, by the way. Good. We had a pet crow for a while here that we named Alfred, you know, oh, oh yeah, for Alfred Hitchcock, of course, right? Obviously. Yeah. yeah, so he hung around here a lot, and we fed him peanuts. Very, very nice crow. But then we got our dog and the crow, you know, and the dog don't really like each other that much. Now the dog gets the peanuts. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> ah, but I digress. <laughs> Sorry for interrupting. You were saying? No, that's okay. Um, the fifth uh, way of uh, well-being is to give. And when we give, it actually boosts our mental health. Uh, we feel good when we give to other people. Um, and there's some really great experiments that show this. Um, for example, they, they did a study where they gave uh, subjects random amounts of money between 10 and $100, and half were told to spend it on themselves, and the other half were told to spend on someone else. Um, and the amount of money didn't make much difference to their feelings of happiness. The big difference was whether they spent it on themselves or on someone else. And those who spent the money on someone else got a greater sense of happiness than those that spent it on themselves. So giving makes us feel good. And giving doesn't have to be monetary. When we give of ourselves, when we give our time, when we help someone, you know, to use a cliche, when we help someone cross the street, when we hold the door open for somebody, when we give of ourselves and help others, it boosts our mental health. Um, and we are also much more inclined to give of ourselves when we have a sense of gratitude for what we have in our own lives. And so gratitude and giving are connected. So practicing gratitude is also a very important way of maintaining one's uh, positive mental health. Wow, yeah, yeah, profound. Can you, can you remind me, um, Debbie, of the, of, of the person who kind of conceived those five, five, uh, five tidbits? Nick Marks. Nick Marks, okay. How do you spell that last name? M-A-R-K-S. I'm just going to make sure I, uh, I give you the actual right spelling. There we go. Um, yeah, and the Nick is N-I-C. 
NIC. Okay. NIC. And he's a British fella and he's got some great uh, YouTube videos and uh, yeah, and some good books as well. Great. So, so and, good, and, good resources all around for, uh, for yes. any of the listeners out there. Yes. And just as a reminder, it's called the five ways to well-being. Five ways to well-being by Nick Marks. Great. Thank you yes. for that. I want to You're talk, very welcome. I want to talk a little bit about that last point about giving um, and giving back. And I know you've done, it leads us quite well into one of the topics I wanted to discuss with you. And that's your work with, with the Rotary Club. Yes, that's a pretty good segue, isn't it? It is, isn't it? <laughs> um, no, I, I, I know loosely what the Rotary Club is. Can you give a brief explanation of, of what it is and what the goal is of the organization? Sure. Uh, the Rotary is the largest service organization in the world. There are literally millions of Rotarians all over the world. I think just about every country in the world has a Rotary Club. And the, the sort of motto of Rotary is service above self. So Rotarians are here to help in any way that we can. And so what we do is we do, we do volunteer work where we directly hands-on help uh, organizations both locally and internationally. So for example, my Rotary Club uh, volunteers at the food bank. We, we take a shift. We have volunteered at um, free, uh, free meals that are offered once a week at the local uh, hospital. Uh, in uh, Richmond, uh, sorry, local, local, one of the local churches in Richmond, uh, mm -hmm. and one at the Salvation Army. We might volunteer at the Salvation Army at Christmas time, giving meals. The our main function, uh, in addition to that, is that we raise funds so that uh, so that we can provide money to charitable organizations so that they can do the great work that they do. So organizations come to us, they fill out an application asking um, for funds for a particular cause. And then we, because we've raised that money, we can then provide them with funds to um, do the great work that they do. Mm. So that's really, and, and we do that both locally and internationally. We uh, might help um, an organization um, build uh, wells and provide water to communities in Africa. We just recently helped to, to do that. We might also more locally, locally we uh, give funds uh, to the BC Guide Dog Association. Um, we have a puppy that we got to name and we pay for that puppy to be trained to be a guide dog um, for individuals with uh, autism spectrum disorder. Wow. for example, or they might be a support dog for uh, a veteran, or they might be for someone who's visually impaired. We use uh, support dogs and therapy dogs in so many different uh, settings now. So those are just two examples of many in terms of where we apply our funds that we raise through our Rotary Club. So it just sounds like a, a wide range of, of service that is provided to whether individuals or communities in need. Yes, absolutely. How long have you been involved with them for, Debbie? Uh, I have been a Rotarian now for nine years. Hmm. Yeah. Does, does your background in psychology and leadership assist with your involvement? Or, or, or do, do you draw on any of those skills in your involvement as a Rotarian? 
Um, I would not, no more than I draw on them in the rest of my life, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I'm about to, uh, effective July 1st, I will be the president of our Rotary Club. Um, it's a one-year uh, term. So then I believe those skills, because that will put me in a, a leadership role within the Rotary Club, I uh, will apply more of those uh, skills for sure. Fair enough. Did your, I mean, just talking about these, um, you know, these five tidbits from, um, Nick Marks and again, how, you know, they tie into, well, your life and ultimate fulfillment and well-being was uh, what, what I meant about the psychological background was, was knowing that, you know, giving back and, and helping others, did that influence your decision to become a Rotarian? Um, I don't think I was necessarily aware of Nick Marks at the time, but I have always known that when I give uh, of myself, it makes me feel good. And so um, I was looking for an organization that I could do that with. And uh, I actually was a speaker uh, at the Rotary Club. Um, one of the things that we do, we meet weekly and we have, um, we have uh, speakers come. And so I was invited to be a speaker on the topic of employing persons with disabilities. And uh, I walked into the room and I instantly knew about a half a dozen people because this Rotary Club was in my community. And so, uh, and I just really enjoyed the, the vibe and I thought this, this is a place where I feel really comfortable and it's a place where I can give back to the community that I live in and internationally. And so that's how I ended up uh, joining. Wow. Very nice. Can, if people want more information on the Rotary Club, where can they go? Uh, the Rotary uh, Club has a website, just Google Rotary International, um, and it'll, it'll tell you all about uh, Rotary Clubs, and then you can find uh, a Rotary Club in your community pretty easily. Okay. Um, yeah. So basically just Google Rotary Club, and, yeah. and it'll show yeah. up. Yes, for sure. And, it, and you know, if you say you live in Richmond, if you Google Richmond Rotary Clubs, you'll, there's, I think, three Rotary, three or four Rotary Clubs uh, in Richmond, for, oh. just for example. Okay. Yeah. So like, like you mentioned, uh, uh, global, very, very global. Yes. This organization. Yes. And I'm just, uh, just going to do a plug for Rotary since I have your attention. Um, Rotary's big mission is to eradicate polio. And so they uh, have partnered with the Bill Gates Society, and we are so close to eradicating uh, polio. And it's just amazing what uh, Rotary has done around the world to do that. And I know many people today don't even really understand that polio still exists, uh, but it does. And our big mission in Rotary is to completely eradicate it. Wow. So yes. there's a plug for what we do. <laughs> plugs are plugs are okay. We're fine with that. Oh, Thank good. You, Glad. Thank you. Otherwise, Debbie. you can just delete that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep it. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about you as well as an individual and coming back to that second uh, point from Nick Marks, the, the physically active point. Um, I spoke to I spoke about how, you know, when I go for a run, it makes me feel very it makes me feel a lot better, you know, psychologically, stress reducer, anxiety reducer, what have you. And I know you, you've previously been very actively involved in running, running marathons. Um, 
are you, are you still running marathons these days? You bet. Although right now I can't find a marathon to run. <laughs> it's it's but, challenging with COVID and yes, whatnot. Yes. But my last marathon I did the end of September and that was the Berlin marathon. Wow. And I know that's a, that's a world major when it comes to marathons, isn't it? Yes, it is. My goal is to run uh, the, the six majors and I now have four under my belt. So I still have London and Tokyo to go. Wow. Good for you. Good for you. I, I ran my first marathon last September in Richmond, actually. It was a mountain equipment co-op sponsored marathon just along the dike there. So I've done that one too, actually, Joel. Oh, no way. Excellent. Well, we it's, have that in common. It's, it's kind of painful. It's back and forth, back and forth, I, I believe, if they haven't changed the route. <laughs> yes, it is the same route. It's long, it's gravelly, it's flat, it's somewhat boring. Mm -hmm. But still, congratulations. This is a great accomplishment. Thank you very much, and, and to you as well. And what, what I, what I want to ask about is, what's the psychological benefit of running a marathon, of setting that goal for yourself and completing it? Uh, well, there's sort of two... Yeah, two pieces to that. Running for me is is my salvation. Running, I have been a runner since I was 19 years old. Um, not running marathons. I didn't start running marathon marathons. Uh, I think till I was about 45 years old, and I've now run over 30 marathons. So just right out of the gates, running for me has been how I cope, how I manage, how I decompress, everything. And I was actually. Um, not, not for a long time. I had no interest in running marathons at all. I would do 10 K's and half marathons and I was good with that. And then I just kind of decided as a, you know, a bit of a bucket list thing. I'm, I'm going to run a marathon. I'm just going to run one because I, you know, I'd like to say I did it. Mm -hmm. So I went and I, I ran my first marathon in 2004 and, uh, <laughs> um, it was a Vancouver marathon and, it was so horrible. It was so hard. <laughs> and uh, I crossed the finish line. I said to myself, oh, I am never doing this again. Um, however, that turned out not to be true. I, I kind of got the bug. And six months later, I was training for my next marathon. And for me, running a marathon is, it just lets me give everything I've got, whether you run a good marathon as in a fast one or a slow one, no matter what you put everything on the line and to achieve that. And I just love that feeling. I just love knowing that I have given something, everything I've got. Sometimes I have a great race. Sometimes I have a terrible race and it takes me forever. Um, but you know, and lots in between. Um, but no matter what the feeling I get when I cross that finish line is just, there's just nothing I can compare it to. So that is why I do them. I do them because I can. And as long as I can, I will continue to do them. I, there's just no feeling like it for me personally. I, I love that. I love that response. Just um, the sense of accomplishment 
it sounds like and setting that goal for yourself and following through with it. So excellent. And, you know, running for me, as I'm sure it is to a degree for you and for many, many people out there, it's, it's therapy. I absolutely love it. I just, you know, you go out there and run for a couple of hours at a time or even, you know, 10 minutes, 20 minutes at a time. And uh, it's almost just everything washes away to a degree. And I can kind of just be at one, uh, one with my thoughts and, and, and really help process the day's, uh, the day's emotions, the day's stressors and really become grounded when doing so. So thank you for sharing that. Oh, you're welcome. Your, your comment too about um, sort of de-stressing. I, I also find that if I have a problem, like if something's going on at work and I don't know how to solve it um, or whatever the problem might be in, in life, I find if I go for a run, uh, I might not get the answer while I'm running. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I'm not really thinking about the problem. I'm just running. Um, but then when I sit back down and, and focus on the problem again, I, I find a solution. So there's something for me about running that just lets my brain kind of process stuff and figure things out without me necessarily actively doing that. And so it's very useful uh, for that too. So when I'm stuck, I'm like, I'm just going to go for a run. Wow. So kind of ignites some neural pathway that might not have been there before. Yes, there's probably some research around that that I don't know anything about. <laughs> well, I, I, I think you gave an excellent response anyway, so great job. You're welcome, Joel. <laughs> and thanks so much for, for coming on the show. I'm sure many, many people gained a lot from, from hearing you speak. I know I did as well. So again, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. I really enjoyed our chat. There you have it, folks. Debbie Samsom. I really enjoyed that discussion with her today. Again, if you do want any more information from Debbie or you want to connect with her, feel free to reach out to her in the email address that she provided. And if you want any more information on Back in Motion, visit us at our website, www.backinmotion.com. Like us or follow us on Instagram, backinmotion underscore health, or visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash backinmotionhealth. And Join us for the next episode. It will be with physiotherapist Baram Jam. Baram is a physiotherapist out of the Toronto area and a bit of a guru when it comes to rehabilitating musculoskeletal injuries. So we'll touch on that and any strategies and tips that he has. So stay tuned for that, folks. Stay happy. Stay healthy. Take care.